If you're visiting this morning or if you haven't met me, uh, first welcome. And my name is Rob Heron. I am the associate pastor of youth here at the church. Very glad that you're here this morning to worship the living God with us. Last week we started a series on the kingdom of God. I don't know how many self-proclaimed kings that are in this room or how many of you have ever lived in a physical kingdom. Probably not many of you. The concept of a kingdom is fairly foreign to us living in America. I don't know how many also of you watch a certain post-apocalyptic zombie show. But in the most recent season, there was a character in this show named King Elijah. King Elijah sets himself up as a king. He has a kingdom and he has a Bengal tiger that follows him everywhere around. And it highlights the foreignness to us of a king. Many of you probably are thinking, I don't live in a kingdom. I don't have a physical human king. But the truth is that we all live in a kingdom. And we all have a king. And that's what we're opening up in this series. What is the kingdom of God? And first and foremost, the kingdom of God is not a place. And first and foremost, the kingdom of God is not a people. But before anything, the kingdom of God is simply this. It's God's reign. R-E-I-G-N. His reign. It's his rule, his sovereignty, his authority, because he is our king. And what we're getting into starting this week is what is the nature of the kingdom And the nature might sound at the the first contradictory because Scripture tells us that it is here. The kingdom of God is now. And at the same time, it isn't here. Not yet. And Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, our text speaks to this apparent contradiction, shows us how it is not a contradiction and how Jesus is the resolution. So if you would, look in your bulletins or open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, and you read with me verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Pray with me. Father, I pray now that by your Spirit, you would give us new eyes to see your kingdom. Invisible, though it is, the reality of it. And the promise that one day, your kingdom will cover this earth in fullness completely, that by your Spirit you are working through your people 
to bring your kingdom. And I pray that our hearts now would long for your kingdom. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen. My wife and I recently, even last week, we moved into a new house. And we've been able to start collecting, getting a few new things since we've moved into this new house. And one thing we're thinking about getting, not sure yet, but thinking about getting a new mattress. And many people that I've talked to about what kind of mattress to get have recommended upgrading from a queen-sized mattress that we have to a king-sized mattress. When I've talked to them, they said, oh, you got to go with the king. It's so luxurious. It makes a queen look like a pauper. or It's nothing. And so, you know, I've slept on a king-sized mattress in hotels. And, you know, it really is amazing how massive they are. I mean, we probably have gotten so used to these kinds of luxuries that we have, but a king-sized mattress is essentially the size of two lifeboats just crammed together with feathers inside of them. I mean, I don't know how big we think kings were. (laughs) I think medieval kings would have walked into a room and seen a mattress this size and said, why are two lifeboats in my room sitting on the ground? These are huge mattresses. Just so you know, this is not an anti-king-size mattress sermon. It's not my point. We're not going to pray right now and finish. The point is this, that we live in a time, and we live in the West, where comfort and control in our lives is more possible and accessible to us than it ever has been. The king-size mattress, what it promises you is that you can sleep like a king. And there's so many things that are advertised and offered to us that promise that. You can eat like a king. You can watch big screen TV like a king. You can watch your big screen TV while eating like a king in your king-size mattress. Isn't that what America is all about? No, it's not. But we have this offer to us to live like a king. You can live comfortably. You can live in control. You can have your own little kingdom. And it's interesting that at the same time, we still have so much discomfort. and such an obvious lack of control, suffering, and pain. And even the best advances we've made in medicine and in technology, wonderful though they are, they really highlight, again, the problem. And they bring with them new problems. We live longer on average than we ever have. And yet, it's arguable that as a culture, we live in greater fear of death than any culture before us. Because we've created an illusion that you won't ever die. We're more connected to one another through our phones, through our computers than we've ever been, and yet it's arguable that we've never been more isolated than one another, than we are from one another. It feels like our kingdom is almost here. We can almost get it, but never quite. And I think this tension is something we've all experienced. It stormed last night, and I imagine many of us in here did not worry about our, uh, our roofs uh, leaking and water getting in our house and then flooding. At least most of us haven't had that concern. We feel safe. We have security systems in many of our homes. And then you hear that one of your family members is sick. This tension. You feel safe and then you feel 
unsafe, and you realize how little control you really have of your life. And as Christians in particular, we feel this tension intensely. We are saved through Jesus Christ. We have forgiveness of sins. We now know God as our Father. And yet, we still live in a frustrating and frustrated world. We suffer. We see others suffer. We cause suffering in other people's lives, even the people we care about. We see old sin patterns pop up and we wonder, when am I actually going to change? Am I really growing? Is my life a disappointment? Am I just a disappointment? It can feel like the kingdom is close, but is never, never quite here. And what scripture speaks into this is this hope that, again, sounds contradictory, but it isn't. That the kingdom is already, and it's not yet. And the kingdom will not come in fullness until God himself brings it in fullness. The kingdom is already here, God is already reigning, and yet his kingdom is not yet here. Not completely. How do we resolve this tension? We do it in this way. This is what I want you to see this morning, is that Jesus is our kingdom hope already in the not yet. Jesus is our kingdom hope already in the not yet. And I want to look at this by exploring these two realities from Hebrews 2. The not yet, one, and two, the already. The not yet and the already. So first, the not yet Of the kingdom. Hebrews is written to an audience that was experiencing so much of the not yet. They were suffering, they were persecuted, and wondering what kingdom hope is there for us. Probably felt a lot of hopelessness and fear. And the author writes to them to say, Jesus is your kingdom hope, and he's greater than everything. In chapter 2, he speaks to how Christ, how Jesus is greater than the angels themselves. Though he is fully human. In fact, he is greater than, than them because he is a human being, because he fulfills our purpose. So the author says these two things about the not yet of the kingdom. First, that the kingdom of God is not yet because of sin's curse. The kingdom is, of God is not yet because of sin's curse. After speaking to how Christ is greater than the angels, in verse 6, the author sets up this quote, quotation of Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is this poetic, in many ways, retelling of the creation story. And it begins by extolling and, and talking about God's greatness, how he is king of all creation in perfect glory and honor. And so in verse 6, The author of the psalm who's quoted here says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Why would God, this perfect king, recall or think about us? But the psalm tells us that God shared his glory and honor with human beings. That his good purpose for mankind was that he would give them dominion over all of his world. That all of nature, every animal, every part of nature would be subjected to mankind under the authority of human beings, under God's authority, under his kingly sovereignty. 
And his purpose was that through us, that he would display and proclaim his kingdom throughout his creation so that all of it would be under our control as we are under God's control. Something probably becomes very evident to you and it was evident to the audience that this psalm was written to. We don't see this. I mean, how much do we see all of nature under our authority? We can start with the smallest example, mosquitoes. That's even just a very small one, not to mention tsunamis, earthquakes, disease, and death itself. These things are not in subjection to us. So what has happened? It's that mankind rebelled against God's kingly authority and said that rather than all of creation being under our dominion that we exercise, instead we're on the defensive against mosquitoes all the way to death itself because we have been subjected to sin and its curse. We have been subjected to its curse. And so God's purpose for this world is frustrated, for his kingdom is frustrated you know, the audience that Hebrews was written to would have said, but Christ has come. He came and he became a human being. He fulfilled the longing of Psalm 8. And so that in verse 8, where it says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, ultimately that's pointing us towards Christ. That he came and he, through his Life, death, and resurrection inaugurated the kingdom. He brought the kingdom. And he took the curse of sin upon it himself and broke it. And still the audience would be saying, so what's going on? We don't see all things in subjection to Christ. We continue to suffer. We continue to die. What's happening? What the author is telling us here is that the kingdom of God is also not yet because the king, Jesus, has not yet returned. He brought the kingdom with his life, death, and resurrection so that all things are under his control, fulfilling our purpose and taking the curse for us, so that he is the true king. But he's not yet here in front of us face to face. Until he returns, the kingdom will not and could not come in fullness. He is the true king. And where he is, the kingdom is. At the risk of dangerous self-revelation and alienating half my audience, there was a film that came out more than 10 years ago called The Notebook. And here's the self-revelation part. I've seen it more than once. And this film is a romance, and it tells the story of Ryan Gosling's character, who is living during World War II, and he falls in love with Rachel McAdams. And you know, he pursues her in a way that really shows that he probably cares too much, but he does it in a way that makes it look like he doesn't care, which is really smooth, not very healthy. But I'm not advocating the way that this movie approaches love, but they fall in love with one another, and ultimately he has to go away to fight in the Great War. And Rachel McAdams begins to live her life without him, and she begins to be lonely, and she doesn't see him there in front of her. Time has passed, and he's not yet returned. And it seems like he hasn't written her or reached out. She doesn't know if he's dead or not. But as an audience, what we see is that Ryan Gosling's character has been writing 
letters to her that have been intercepted, and so they don't get to her. Rachel McAdams, not seeing this, she begins to date James Marsden's character. And, you know, he looks nice, but as an audience, if you're like me, you're thinking, no, don't do it. Don't date James Marsden. Don't end up with him. He's not the true guy. You don't end up with him. Ryan Gosling, he's the true guy. You know, they have that classic interaction in the rain where, you know, I wrote you. You did? So... She needs to end up with Ryan Gosling. James Marsden looks nice, but he is not the true love. Silly, but this is a picture for us of what Hebrews is telling us, which is that our hope, our true hope, is not in another kingdom or in another king. It's in Jesus. But your hope is not in a kingdom of this world. Wherever you fall on either part of the spectrum in this current political war, you know, if your side gets a victory and rises to the top, it may be helpful to you, maybe even helpful to many people, but that is not your ultimate hope. If that is your hope, it is false. That is not your true king. But also, your hope is not to be in any power or plan of yours, to live in your own little kingdom. That if you depend on and find your ultimate confidence in your ability to accomplish and achieve and manage and get the life that you always wanted, that's a false hope. It's not the real kingdom. It's not the true kingdom. You could even be a teenager in this room and by now you know from disappointment that things don't always end up the way you want them to be. You only have to go through one breakup. You only have to lose one job to see that your little kingdom is not going to last. It's not where it's at. Our hope is not in another kingdom. But at the same time, we must wait with this telling us we must wait with hope for the return of our true king. And so we must wait, which means that we are called to not be shocked Not be utterly shocked when your life is out of your control. So parents, when your children do not perfectly respond to your encouragement, to your challenge, and when you find that you cannot control their behavior perfectly, you cannot control their hearts, you can grieve that. You should pray in the midst of that. But we should not be utterly shocked because you are not king. And the king has not yet come back. And until he comes back, we will experience the not yet. Things will not be entirely, completely, fully the way they are meant to be. But we must wait with hope, not with cynicism. So anyone in this room, adults or anyone, that find, if you find yourself seeing your culture move away from you, What you are called to not do is to respond with cynicism, which can be either responding with fear and hate towards things you see that are not okay. And it also, cynicism could also mean just burying your head in the sand and withdrawing from everyone around you because the world is just going, it's going down. Responding with hope means having your ultimate posture be, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. When you see things in your life that are not the way they're meant to be, to what extent is your posture and the prayer of your heart 
Come, Lord Jesus. You need to come back, or none of this is going to be right. In the end, none of this will be right. To the extent that that is not the prayer of my heart and the posture and prayer of your heart, you are finding your hope in another kingdom or in another king. Your true hope is in Jesus. And he is not yet here with us face to face. And at the same time, secondly, your hope and my hope for the kingdom is already. There is an already hope to the kingdom. And the author shows us here the kingdom, God, kingdom of God is already here because Jesus already died and rose again. You can look in verse 8 where it says, Now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside, has in, uh, outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So here he's speaking to the audience and saying, you do not see everything under his control. And at the same time, verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. We see Jesus risen from the dead, risen victorious over the curse of sin and death for us. And it says something very interesting here. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Because of his crucifixion. What does that mean? And this can mean two different things at the same time here. That God the Father raised Jesus, his son, from the dead because he promised to vindicate his righteous servant. The one that would fulfill all the righteousness required in the law that he would vindicate that servant. And that is who Jesus is. And the father fulfilled, went good on that promise by raising his son from the dead. And at the same time, this is also true. That Jesus was raised from the dead because of the suffering of death. Because death, dying to defeat the kingdom of evil and death, was what was necessary. It's what needed to happen to bring God's kingdom to this world for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That God sent his son, the son went willingly, doing whatever was necessary to the greatest extent to die for us, to take the curse from us. And because he did that, then he was raised in victory to show that he is in control of everything. That Jesus Christ is truly king. That all things are already, by his resurrection, in subjection to him. That here in downtown Athens, everything you see around you with all the things that are not the way they're meant to be, it belongs to Jesus. And all the people that you see around you, whether they're believers or not, they will one day bow and bend their knee to the king. Whether in judgment or in salvation, Jesus is king in all things. And you and your life and your family and your job, all of it already belongs to Jesus. Because he was raised in victory. The author also shows us this, the kingdom of God is already because you already belong to the king. 
When it says here in verse 9, but we see him, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Maybe you're thinking, I don't see him. My eyes don't see Jesus reigning and ruling and all things being taken care of and all poverty being eradicated, no more violence. So again, what is happening? What this is showing us is that we see Jesus by faith. Through the gift of faith, the Spirit unites you to Jesus, your true King, so that His death is yours, that you have died to the kingdom of evil and death, and that you have been raised with Him in newness of life. The reign of Christ, the kingdom of God is within you. That his kingdom life, born at the resurrection, is now living inside you, making you new, so that you are no longer a citizen of the kingdom of this world, but a citizen of heaven. That is who you are. Because you already belong to the king. And because you already belong to him, you know and can be assured that he will make good on his promise to return. And to one day make everything the way it's meant to be. He's already gone to the greatest lengths to bring his kingdom for you. So you can know that he will bring it to completion when he returns. Another story of love that I like more than The Notebook is the movie The Princess Bride. And this movie is wonderful. And in this movie, there are two characters, the main love interests of one another, Wesley and Buttercup. They fall in love. But Wesley, of course, must go off to make his fortune, becoming a pirate, the Dread Pirate Roberts. And he goes off, and Buttercup must remain behind, as it goes with these stories, and she does not see him. Time passes, he's gone, she assumes that he's probably dead. And he comes back to find her. And when he comes back to find her and she finally realizes that he has not been dead, he's not been gone, she says, I trust you, I love you. But again, he is taken away. He is taken away and he is tortured and it seems as though he's been put to death by the man that Buttercup is engaged to, the evil Prince Humperdinck. And he has tortured Wesley and he's told Buttercup that her true love, Wesley, is dead. And so she decides she's going to go forward with marrying this evil king, this evil prince. And suddenly, he comes back to rescue her once again. And he's, you know, he's clearly, he's not been dead, but he's been almost dead. And he comes back to rescue her. And when she sees him again, he says to her, why didn't you wait for me? And she says, well, you were dead. And he says to her, Death cannot stop true love. It can only delay it for a little while. And again, when she is, later on, when she's faced with the evil Prince Humperdinck and he's trying to stop her and stop this true love, what she says is, my Wesley will always come for me. No matter what you do to me, my Wesley will always come for me. Because she knows that he would go to the greatest lengths, even death itself, to win her and to belong with her. And this is the kind of promise and love that we have through our King. The hope is already yours because Jesus, your King, is already yours. 
And he promises already to return for you. That if he has made good on his promise to do what's necessary to bring you to himself, then he will return for you. And also, united to him, you have already died and been raised with him into kingdom life. So these are the promises we're given. What do you do with these promises? The first thing you do with these promises is you are called to use hopeful imagination to see the already in the not yet. You must use hopeful imagination to see the already in the not yet. Hopeful imagination is another word for the eyes of faith. To live already in light of what we have not yet seen fully. To begin to see the world and to begin to see other people, to see yourself redeemed by your king, belonging to him. To see that already while you live in the not yet. And this clearly changes the way that you would see yourself. Some of you this morning, maybe many of you, maybe here and feeling ashamed. Feeling like I have not lived up to what my king asks of me. I don't even know if anyone, much less a perfect king, could ever love me. And the advice that our culture would tend to give you is this, is to, you need to give grace to yourself. And I, I, I think I know what that means, is that you don't need to be quite as hard on yourself. The truth for Christians is much better than that. And it's this, that you don't need to give grace to yourself. You need to live in light of the grace you've been given already. You know, when we say give grace to yourself, it really skips over what Jesus our King may want for us, which is to be convicted of the reality that you are not yet what you should be and what you will be one day when he returns. And at the same time, when you live with hopeful imagination, looking to what is true already in the middle of the not yet, you see that you are already, as you are, a daughter or a son of the king. You are never loved more in the future than you are in this moment because God, your father, the king, has loved you from eternity and done what is necessary to bring you into his glorious kingdom. You are already that. You are already loved. And this changes the way that we look at our jobs. Imagine many of you feel dissatisfied with your work. At least in in various degrees, you feel like the people I work with are frustrating or I don't really feel passionate about what I'm doing. And it is good and it is proper to grieve things that are hard in your workplace. But living with hopeful imagination and what is already true because Jesus is raised from the dead, what it means is that whether you are a contractor, whether you are a businessman, whether you're a CEO or at the bottom of the ladder, or whether you work in retail or in a restaurant, what you do offered up to the glory of your king is just as pleasing as the missionary in Syria. That God, your father, the king, has redeemed all things to himself so that your work, whatever it is, submitted to the king is just as pleasing and brings just as much glory to him. You need to see with helpful imagination your marriages, seeing your spouse the way that they will be in eternity and the way that 
the way that they have been loved by the king. We need to see our children with hopeful imagination. We need to see our city with hopeful imagination. Doesn't mean seeing it with fake idealism, but seeing it through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're called to live with hopeful imagination, and we are called to, right now, hopefully follow Jesus into the not yet. That Jesus, your king, gave himself up to the curse of this world already for you, so that you would have hope that as his servants now, he kindly, in a good purpose, invites you to follow him into the not yet. And what does that mean? It means, first and foremost, receiving Jesus' reign in your heart, your mind, your soul, before anything else. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, can I suggest to you that the reason why you resist this, and you do resist it, is not primarily intellectual. It's not primarily even because of your story. Though your story is valuable and important, and I and the other pastors would love to hear it, but it is primarily because you do not want to give up the throne. That's true for all of us in many ways. Even as servants of the king, there are places in your heart this morning, because you're living in the not yet, that you need to apply the already by submitting to the kingship of Christ. In what way are you refusing to bend the knee to your good and kind king? You need to diagnose your heart this morning. In what way are you refusing to look to the already in the middle of the not yet? God calls you to bend the knee because he is good and he is kind and he loves you. What this looks like outwardly, I'll just give you one example. It looks like death. The way that plays out in relationships in so many ways is forgiveness. That already Jesus is reigning and when he returns Reconciliation will be perfect, and we won't need to ask for forgiveness, as Todd said. But in the present, forgiveness is hard, and it's painful. But already, you have the king's mercy, and you are living in the kingdom of mercy. So this morning, believers, if you, in whatever way this morning your heart refuses to suffer for the sake of a brother or a sister or someone else, to forgive them, to enter into the process, the messy process of forgiving, I would suggest that that is a way that you are not bending the knee and submitting to the kindness of your king. It looks like following your king into death. Who wants to do that? We have to know that our king is trustworthy. There's a story uh, that came from few years back, and many of you maybe know the name Chip Conley. Chip Conley was a CEO of a very fancy boutique hotel chain. And Chip Conley was in charge of CEO of this company right after 9-11, and the economy was starting to crash for the hotel companies. And things were looking bad. And all of his board of directors were urging him, telling him to employ this worldly kingdom tactics by reducing the salaries of the lowest level people, making that cut first, and then firing anyone else they needed to. 
And Chip Conley continued to refuse. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. And what they didn't see, what the board didn't see for two years is that he refused to take a salary during that time, which used to be in the millions. He refused to take a salary. And when the company needed more, rather than firing people or cutting their salaries, these people who had children and families, what he did is he started to dig into his personal assets, into his own retirement, sacrificing all of these things unseen. But finally, when the board did see this, they jumped on board. They saw how amazing and otherworldly this kind of kindness and sacrifice was that they began to also sacrifice their salaries. So finally, the company turned around and it survived. No one was fired. No salaries were cut. The king we have, verse 9 tells us, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone. And when it says tasted, it doesn't mean sipped. It means drink down to the dregs that he sacrificed and took upon himself the full weight of sin's curse and the kingdom of evil and death upon himself. And he faced it at the cross so that you wouldn't have to. So that you would be free to live in hope already right now. The more you see this, the more you see the goodness and the kindness of your king already in the not yet, you will follow him. And you will do likewise. Because he has already taken the curse from you. And so what you are facing already is endless eternal hope. Now and forever. Until he returns. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are this king, that you sent your son, Jesus, so that we would not taste death. Though we die, we look forward to and point our eyes, hopefully, to a future when we will be raised with you, brought into your kingdom in fullness, where there will be no weeping, no disease, no anger, no violence, nothing but what you have already accomplished in your Son, which is true, glorious, honorable kingdom life. Apply this to our hearts, we pray now. Amen.